Well, if you will, take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. We're in week 5 of a verse-by-verse series through the Gospel of John. If you're new to this church, we typically practice verse-by-verse preaching through whole books of the Bible. Rather than cherry-picking our favorite hobby horse passages, we go through whole books of the Bible to communicate clearly what the Scripture says. And I would just make you aware, for those of you that are here, we've got some Gospel of John journals. And so here in the front pew, we've got quite a few of them in the ESV translation where you can journal through the Gospel of John as we preach through it between now and, Lord willing, December 2023. So we'll be in John for two years, and so make sure you pick one of those. They're only $3. In my introductory message to this series, I mentioned to you by introducing John that John is unique, and John is different than the other three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those gospel accounts are known as synoptic gospels because they give a synopsis, a summary of Jesus's life. John's gospel is unique. It was the last one written historically of the four, and John wrote this gospel really as a theological gospel to give us truths that we can know, truths that we can believe. In fact, in his purpose statement at the end of chapter 20, he kind of gives the thesis statement for this book. He tells us exactly why he wrote this book. Look at it again. We'll return to this statement again and again through this study. John says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the point of John's gospel is that you can have life, real life, meaningful life, abundant life, fulfilling life, satisfying life, eternal life. The purpose of John's gospel is so that you can believe the truth about Jesus, and by believing, you will have life. That only comes by believing in Jesus. And when we talk about believing in Jesus, we're not just talking about maybe that prayer you prayed with your mama at your bedside. We're not just talking about walking down an aisle and taking a preacher's hand and filling out a card. Believing in Jesus is not just a one-time event in the historical past. Believing in Jesus is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment reality. And these things are written to you. We're studying this gospel of of John together so that you might believe, and by believing you would have life in his name. Well, this morning we're going to be considering two paragraphs in this first chapter in verses 19 through 28, and this is John the Apostle's expanded explanation on John the Baptist. And the title of my message is this, he, that's John the Baptist, came as a witness. He came as a witness. And my title is taken directly from verses 6 and 7 that we studied several weeks ago when John first introduced John the Baptist as a character in his gospel account. Notice what he says there. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So there in verses 6 and 7, twice John the gospel writer says that John the Baptist came for this reason, to be a witness, to be a witness. And then again in verse 15, he says it again, he came as a witness. And I told you then the underlying word from this word witness is really a courtroom word, and we use it as a courtroom word, right? 
When somebody is in a courtroom and they're standing before a judge, they are sworn in as a witness, and there they give their testimony. In fact, in our focal passage today, the very same courtroom word is used again, but this time our Bible translation translates it not as witness, but as testimony. He came as a testimony. And these are really interchangeable words. When you go to court, you give a testimony, then because you're a witness, you witness and give your testimony. And that's how we see it used here in John chapter 1. So let's look at our focal passage, verses 19 through 28. This is the word of God. Listen to it. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, John the Baptist is presented here in this gospel account as the first witness for Jesus Christ. He is the very first in redemptive history, the first testimony of Jesus Christ, because John testified of Jesus and his nature before any of the disciples were called. He testified of Jesus and his nature before any people began following Jesus along the countryside of Galilee. John the Baptist is the first witness for Jesus, and he's entering the courtroom of the world. He's standing on the witness stand and giving testimony to the nature of of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting how the, how the Apostle John structures this passage of Scripture. When we began studying this several weeks ago, I pointed out how the first chapter of John is reminiscent to the first chapter of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible. The beginning of the Bible begins with these words, in the beginning, right? How does John 1.1 begin? In the beginning, same way. What's also interesting about the structure of this passage is that if you go to Genesis chapter 1, what follows is the seven days of creation. Now, here's what follows the epilogue or the prologue of John's gospel. Like look at the next slide or look in your Bibles. On verse 29, the next day. Verse 35 begins that paragraph, the next day. Verse 43 begins the next day. And so the day we're studying today in verses 19 through 28 is day one. Verse 29, day two. Verse 35, day three. Verse 43, day four. Flip over to chapter two. How does chapter two begin? On the third day. What's four plus three? Seven. <laughs> so John is presenting, John the gospel writer is presenting seven consecutive days. Genesis begins with the seven days of creation. John is beginning with the seven days of the new creation that come through Jesus Christ. And I find it fascinating that day one of the new creation account in, God, in John's gospel is that John the Baptist 
is giving witness. John the Baptist is giving testimony. He's giving testimony to this delegation of religious leaders who came to check out what in the world is happening out there in the wilderness area beyond the Jordan River. John is giving witness. It's all about his testimony. And we should not miss the significance of this truth. In fact, look at this next slide. Giving a personal witness for Jesus Christ is foundational to God's work of new creation. Our testimony, our witness for Jesus is foundational for God's work of new creation. It was true then, and it's true 2,000 years later today. It's foundational to the mission of the church. It's fundamental and foundational to our lives who claim to be Christians. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at the first witness on the first day of the new creation and see some character traits and some aspects of John the Baptist's witness that can inform us as we are called to give witness for Jesus as well. These are some elements that inform our public witness for Christ, some traits that we should develop corporately and individually. And let me say it again in case you didn't hear me the first time. Every believer... Every follower of Jesus is called to stand on the witness stand of this world and give testimony for Jesus. How do we do that? Three things I want us to see from the example of John the Baptist. First of all, we must have a life that confirms the truth. We must have a life that confirms the truth. Now, John the Baptist's testimony, his witness for Jesus was prompted again by this delegation of religious leaders that were sent from the Pharisees in Jerusalem. Look again at verse 19, and this is the testimony, the witness of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? (laughs) Who are you? Now, we have to know the backstory of why they would be so curious to find out who are you, and we get the backstory in the other three gospel accounts. We know that John was out in the desert, in the wilderness area, and he was baptizing people. He was preaching. He was proclaiming, repent of your sins. And so he caused no small disturbance in the kingdom. He caused no small disturbance among Judea. In fact, I love how Mark, the gospel writer, summarizes John's ministry in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5 of his gospel. He said, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Watch this. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so this is why the delegation was sent from the Pharisees in Jerusalem, the capital of Judea. They sent them there because everybody's leaving Jerusalem. Where's everybody going? They're all going out to the wilderness. Why are you going out to the wilderness? Well, there's this preacher who's wearing camel skin and eating locust and honey who's proclaiming repent. And they're all going, confessing their sins. This is why the delegation came, because of the uniqueness, listen, the uniqueness of his life and his ministry. We know John led a holy life. He led a righteous life. He led a separated life. This bears out in the questions that they asked him. Who are you? How did he respond to that? I am not the Christ. Now, why would he say that? Because that was the fundamental truth behind their question. Who are you? And he gives this disclaimer. Well, you need to know, first of all, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the promised one. 
So they asked him some follow-up questions. Look again at verse 21 in your text. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he, an he answered, no. Uh, now their questions were prompted by their understanding of the Old Testament prophecies. They understood there were specific prophecies that were given about the coming of Messiah, about the coming of God's deliverer for the Hebrew people. And so these questions they're asking, first of all, they ask, are you Elijah? In the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, in the next to the last verse of the Old Testament, there is a prophecy given that before the awesome day of the Lord comes, Elijah would come. Now that day of the Lord refers to final day, the final judgment. And so they say, are you Elijah? Are you the one that's going to precede the awesome and powerful day of the Lord? He says, no, I'm not. Then they ask a follow-up question. Well, are you the prophet? Who's that? Well, look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is a prophecy given by Moses. And Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you, like me from among you, from your brothers, a prophet. It is to him you shall listen. And so for a couple of millennia, Israel has been looking for this replacement prophet of Moses. Moses said, God's going to raise up a prophet from among you, and they've been looking for that prophet. And so they say, are you the prophet Moses predicted? And he says to them, no, I'm not him either. These are the questions they were wondering. And this lets us know that in first century Jerusalem, in first century Judea, first century Hebrew culture, there was a great anticipation for a deliverer. They were looking for a Messiah. Why? Because they were under Roman occupation. They were under the cruel thumb of the Roman Empire and their emperor. And so they're looking for a deliverer. They're looking for someone. But John the Baptist's life gave them this possibility. It might be him. John the Baptist's life gave them this hope that maybe he's the fulfillment of all the promises of God. But don't miss this principle. Look at the next slide. John the Baptist's life made his testimony about Jesus believable. This is fundamental for us as followers of Christ. His life, the way he lived, made his testimony, his witness for Jesus, believable. Over and over in this chapter, we have been informed that John the Baptist is a witness. He came to give witness. He's not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. He came to give testimony. But it was John's life of faithfulness. It was John's life of holy living. It was John's life of being separated from the ways of this world and his life that was so unique, so uncommon in their behavior that Jerusalem and the religious leaders of the day thought it was necessary to send an entire delegation to find out who this guy is. Who are you? What makes you tick? What's the deal with you? And the same is true for us. If we would be effective witnesses for Christ, we must have a life that makes our testimony believable. We must live a life that makes our testimony believable. Because here's the deal. The life we live will either confirm or deny our witness for Jesus. Let me say that again. The way we live our lives will either confirm or deny our testimony for Jesus. So, for instance, the way you treat your spouse will confirm or deny your witness for Jesus. 
the way you handle life in the world, the ethical boundaries by which you conduct business? Do you tell the truth about that used car you're selling on Craigslist? I don't know if people still use Craigslist, but if you do, does your presentation of that vehicle confirm or deny your testimony for Jesus? The way you interact on social media, does it confirm or does it deny your testimony for Jesus? The way you respond to the waitress at the restaurant who gets your order wrong, does it confirm or does it deny that you're a Christian? Notice how the Apostle Peter instructs us in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, keep your conduct. That's the way you live your life. Among the Gentiles, people who are not Christians, how do we keep it? Honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, as people who are bad for society, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's the day of visitation? It's the day of judgment. And Peter's saying, and John the Baptist's life is saying that on the day of judgment, there will be people who at first call you an evildoer. You are not good for the advancements of our culture. You're not good for a civilized society. They call you an evildoer because of those things. But they see the conduct of your life that does not deny, but it affirms your testimony in Jesus. And on the day of judgment, they will give glory to God because of your life. The way you live your life will either confirm or deny your profession of faith about Jesus. Does your walk match your talk? And so if you're here this morning, and you would say honestly with yourself and with the Lord, you know what? I, I do claim to be a Christian, but man, my conduct among the Gentiles does not bear that out. I claim to be a Christian, but my behavior, my lifestyle, it's not one that really confirms that reality. If you would be honest enough with yourself this morning and say, you know what, there's some inconsistency, maybe even hypocrisy there. The way I see it, you've got one of two options. One of two options. Option number one is this. Repent. Repent. Come clean before the Lord. Say, God, I admit I have not been living in congruence with who you are. My life has not matched what I profess to believe. And friends, repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. A change of mind that leads to a change of action. If your walk doesn't match your talk, if your conduct among the Gentiles is not honorable as one who professes faith in Christ, here's option one, repent. Here's option two. Stop claiming to be a Christian. If your conduct does not match your profession, quit telling people you're a Christian. Quit telling yourself you're a Christian. It's not hypocrisy. It's that you're lost. If there's no desire in your heart to pursue holiness, if there's no unction in your soul to submit to the rule of Jesus in your life, you are not a Christian. But I prayed this prayer. I walked that aisle. You're self-deceived. You're living under the assumption you're a Christian because of some past act, but your life does not give evidence to that. In fact, notice how James put it very clearly and succinctly in James chapter 1. He says, but be doers of the word 
and not hearers only. Why? You're deceiving yourselves. You've deceived yourself that you're a Christian because you've said, yes, I believe the word, but you're not a doer of the word. You got one of two options. Repent, or number two, stop believing that you're a Christian because your life tells you you're not. Be honest. Stop deceiving yourself. This is the first element we see of John the Baptist's witness for Jesus. He could give a clear and profound testimony about Christ because he had a life that matched up to his testimony, a life that confirmed the truth. Here's the second thing we see about his witness. Number two, he had lips that confessed the truth. If we would be witnesses for Jesus in 2022 in this mixed-up, crazy world, we've got to realize we must have lips that confess the truth of the gospel. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. Most of you have probably seen portrayals on television, maybe in movies. I know I've watched some very captivating public hearings before Congress, and people are sworn in to give testimony Bureaucrats sworn in to testify against these oversight committees. And often what you'll hear these witnesses say before the, the assembled Congress committee is, I plead the fifth. <laughs> what is that? They're invoking the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution, which is you cannot be compelled to give testimony that might self-incriminate you. It's in the Miranda rights with these words. If you've ever been arrested, anybody been arrested? I'm just kidding, don't, don't share. If you are called to give testimony before a court of law, or if somebody arrests you, oh yeah, I asked you if anybody's been arrested. Nobody raised their hands. You don't have to confess that. God's forgiven you. Um, they will say you have the right to what? Remain silent. That's the Fifth Amendment. You can't self-incriminate yourself, right? But here's the thing. If you are a Christian, you do not have the right to remain silent. If you are a believer in Jesus, you cannot plead the fifth. You must confess the truth. Well, let me tell you, as a Christian who has come to faith in Jesus, and here we see the example of John the Baptist, he confessed the truth and did not deny it. And here's an important component of that verbal testimony. We're not seeking to point people, listen, to ourselves. We're seeking to point people to Christ. John the Baptist was the first Baptist preacher. And if you know anything about Baptist preacher, they're sometimes given to egos, right? John the Baptist was humble. He was not given to an ego. I, I heard a story about one particular Baptist preacher who he was a brand new preacher in this church in this small town, and he was really proud of himself for the way he delivered that Sunday morning service. And on the way home, he uh, said to his wife, you know, I wonder how many good preachers are in this town. And his wife said, well, one less than you think there are. That's something my wife might say to me. But this is John the Baptist. In fact, notice, we'll see this as he comes back into focus uh, in two chapters at the end of chapter 3, verse 30, it says this, John the Baptist said this, he, Jesus, must increase, I must decrease. When the delegation demanded an answer, notice in verse 22 how they pressed him. They said, who are you? 
You need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Here's what I find interesting about that. John the Baptist says, I'm the voice. How is Jesus referred to throughout this chapter? As the word. Jesus is the word. John the Baptist comes along and says, I'm the voice. You see the connection? The voice proclaims the word. He gives his lips. He gives his testimony. He speaks and confesses the truth. There's a famous saying that's sometimes wrongly attributed to Francis of Assisi, and this is the saying, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. We understand the sentiment of that, what I was talking about earlier. Your life must match up with your, test, with your witness, with your testimony, but that's really a false statement because the gospel is words. The good news is a message. It is concepts. It is truth. So we must use words. Now, again, at my previous point, if we have a life that doesn't match up with those words, then the gospel message will not be effective because it is with the words of the gospel, the message of the gospel, coupled with a gospel-shaped life that God uses to bring about transformation in people's lives. The spoken word from our lips. In fact, Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, as John's interview continues with this delegation from Jerusalem, notice verse 25, how the conversation goes. They ask him this question. Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And again, this might be helpful for us to understand some of the Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. They understood the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 13 that there would come this washing, there would come this cleansing that would be associated with the coming of the Messiah. Zechariah 13.1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And here's what they're saying. Look, John, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, prophet, then what gives you the right to do this baptizing? Who gave you the authority to do these things? Who do you think you are? And notice how John responds to that. Verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Who's he talking about? Jesus. I'm baptizing with water, but there's one who stands among you you do not know. So they question his right to be doing this. They question his authority. What gives you the right? Has anybody ever asked you a question like that if you have a gospel conversation? Who made you the authority of what is ultimate truth? We follow John's example. We just keep pointing to Jesus. Just keep pointing to Jesus. That's what he does here. Me, I'm nothing. I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. But there's somebody who stands among you you don't know him yet. That's the authority. That's the right that I have. John goes on to say, this one who's coming after you, after him in verse 27, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, what does he mean here? Well, this cultural context is somewhat obscure to us. So in first century Palestine, people didn't have closed toes, toes shoes like this or boots or um, loafers with socks inside there that protect our feet from the dirt and grime and mire. They had open sandals, just a flat leather strap with two strips that kept it connected to your foot. 
So this is the way they wore their, on their feet, just to kind of protect their soles. And the roads that they walked on were dirty, were dusty. The form of travel they had was animals, and so it was mixed with all kinds of donkey dung. So it was nasty. Your feet became incredibly filthy, smelly. And so what John's saying here is really referencing a first-century rabbinical custom. If you were an understudy, a, te- a student of a teacher, of a rabbi, it was understood that as a servant to this rabbi, you would do even the most menial tasks. But one task that would never be asked of a servant is to untie the straps of your rabbi, because everybody knew that's nasty. You don't need to do that. Here's what John the Baptist is saying. Not only is untying his nasty sandal straps not beneath me, it's above me. I'm not worthy to untie his straps. Again, he's pointing people to the glory of Christ. He's pointing people to the greatness of Jesus. You see, people may be hostile to your witness, but the reason they're hostile to your witness is because they haven't captured a glimpse of the grandeur of Jesus. They haven't seen him for who he is. They don't realize the grace he offers. They don't understand the depth of his compassion, his love, mercy, and forgiveness. Even here in the Bible Belt, here in good old Chattanooga, Tennessee, the most Bible-minded city in America. Yeah, people know Jesus died on a cross. They understand that, but they really know why. They really understand the greatness of it. There's some gospel basics that people just don't know. First of all, gospel basic number one, that everyone has personal guilt before God because God is our creator and we are accountable to him. And therefore, we have accountability before our creator. People don't understand that Jesus' death on the cross was actually work to deliver lost sinners. It wasn't just an example of love. It just wasn't a portrayal of morality. It was a judicial act he did to pay the penalty, the punishment for our sins. People don't understand this gospel basic that even the resurrection of Jesus, sure, they know Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but they don't understand this truth that Jesus was resurrected from the dead because in so doing, he proved he has victory over death, and he proved that only he can give you victory over death and can give you real life. This is the gospel. This is the message we preach. These are the truths we proclaim. And so we have a life that confirms the truth, We have lips that confess the truth. Thirdly, we have language that calls to truth. An effective witness is one that includes a clear call to respond to the truth of Jesus with repentance and faith. Listen, it's not enough to just live a life of goodness. It's not even enough just to give testimony about the gospel and about who Jesus is. Like John the Baptist, we have a responsibility to call people to respond to that truth, to issue an opportunity to respond. This is how John does it. John the Baptist, he says, make straight the way of the Lord. What does that mean? You got high places, you got bumps in the road, level them out. You got holes and obstacles, Fill them in. Remove any blockade. Get rid of any barricade spiritually that's preventing you from coming fully and completely to Jesus. Make straight the way of the Lord. Remove the obstacles. Fill in the potholes. And specifically, John's ministry was calling people to repent. 
to repent. I've talked about that word some, but what repentance fundamentally means is a turning away from my own rule, from my own selfishness and sin, and turning to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. That's repentance. I'm turning away from my own rule of my life to do things the way I want to do, and I'm turning to surrender and to submit to King Jesus. The royal road for the king is paved with humble repentance and obedient faith. These are the three irreducible elements we see in John's witness for Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. If you, you're here today and you know, I'm a Christian, I know I am. Failing, I'm failing. Flawed, I'm flawed. But if you're here and you know God has called me to be a witness, this is an honest question. I do want you to show your hands, all right? Here we go. If you would answer this question, I need to be better equipped at sharing my faith, would you just simply raise your hand up? Anybody admit that? Keep your hands up because go to this next slide, all right? You're all volunteering to come to this training, all right? (laughs) During our missions conference, we're actually going to have a pre-conference conference. One of our missionary partners, Chad Wade, He's going to be here on Saturday, March 19th. And that morning, he's going to be leading us through an evangelism conference, really teaching us how to use some practical tools, some easy-to-remember things to say that will help us learn how to be a witness. Beyond that, we're going to eat lunch together after we learn these tools. And get this, after lunch, we're going to Coolidge Park to share the gospel with strangers. Raise your hand again if he was coming, right? I'm just kidding. Come! That's what we're going to do because this is what we're called to do. We're called to give testimony for Jesus. In fact, I want you to see this reality. God works miraculously through our faithful yet timid witness. You might want to just write that down. God works miraculously through our faithful yet timid witness for him. I know I've shared this story before, but it's the best one I know of to illustrate this truth. I looked at my files, and the last time I shared this was nine years ago, and you've all slept since then, so you likely forgot the story, but let me tell you about it anyway. It's a true story about a faithful yet timid preschool Sunday school teacher. In her neighborhood, she saw this family move in, And they happened to have a daughter who looked to be around the age of the preschool Sunday school class that she taught at the local Baptist church in their community. And she goes over to their house. She knocks on the door. She introduces herself, has some small talk. And then she says, hey, by the way, I teach preschool children at our local Baptist church. Would it be all right for me to come and pick up your daughter this Sunday, take her to church with me and on my class, and then I'll bring her home. You don't have to do anything. They said, sure, that'll be okay. So she began that routine the next Sunday. This routine went on for several weeks until finally, one Monday morning, the little girl looked up at her mommy who's washing dishes and she asked her this question. Mommy, why do all the other mommies and daddies go to church with their kids, but you don't go to church with me? Well, that cut her mother to the quick. And so that evening she told her husband, I don't know what you're doing Sunday, but I'm taking my daughter to church. And that's exactly what they did. He reluctantly went as well. And so there they were in a church much like ours, a young married couple with a young daughter sitting under the preaching of the gospel every week. 
And God used that to tear down their strong defenses. And both of them repented and believed in the gospel. Because a simple testimony God can use to work a miracle. And if it ended there, that would be enough to prove the point. But it doesn't end there because this little girl grew up to be a faithful Christian, a profound Bible teacher, and a pastor's wife who's still serving to this day. And if it ended there, that would be miraculous, but it doesn't because she had a little brother who grew up to be a faithful follower of Jesus who's now a profound Bible teacher, an elder in his church, shepherding the flock of God. And she had another brother who was miraculously saved from a decadent life. He went to Bible college and seminary, and he's the pastor at Silverdale Baptist Church. And the last brother is one untimely born. It's me. A whole family transformed by the power of the gospel because a timid preschool Sunday school teacher had a weak but willing witness. Do not underestimate what God can do through you. Do not underestimate what God can do from your shivering witness in Coolidge Park next month. As I close today, let me ask this question. First of all, have you responded to this gospel message? Have you trusted by faith in who Jesus is? Have you repented, turning from the rule of your own life and saying, Jesus, I submit to you as king? If not, I'll be here at the front during this time of response, and I'd love to talk to you about that. Here's the second thing. As a Christian, are you taking up the mantle of responsibility that we all have to give our testimony in the court of the world for who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? That we have a life that confirms this truth. That we have lips that confess the truth. And that we use language that calls people to submit and surrender to this truth. That leads to my last thought. God can take our weak yet willing witness and use it to powerfully transform people's lives. Let's go to him in prayer.